your Bible to Matthew 3 and Acts chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, let me highlight a couple of things for you. This week, I'm going to send you an email. If we have your information, I'm going to send you an email. Uh, our winter and spring semester life group guide is just about ready, and we're going to send you a copy uh, this week. And I want to encourage you, next week is our official you know, winter kickoff for our winter semester for life groups. We have several new life groups, and we have several life groups with uh, a special emphasis that I'll share with you next week. Uh, and then many of our life group hosts and leaders are going to be here next Sunday if you want to meet them in person. But in the meantime, you can take a look at the guide. You can see what's available. If you're not in a group, I want to encourage you, uh, doing church completely changes when you learn to do church in a group. Thank you. When you learn to do church in a group, when you learn to, when you connect, when you have relationships, when you belong, when you have a group that you look for, when you come into the building or when you serve, when you do relationships, uh, church like that, I guarantee you it'll change, it'll change the way that you engage and the way that you grow in faith. So I want to encourage you to jump into a group. Tonight, we're going to have, and I, I apologize, we missed it on the announcements this morning, it's in your bulletin tonight, we're going to have what we call our a freedom and healing prayer service. Uh, so we've been fasting our second week in the fast now. We have one week left. I want to encourage you tonight to be here. There's a man in our church who was healed, who was physically, verifiably healed in his body in our prayer and healing service last year. And uh, he's going to share tonight that testimony with you. And I, I want you to come to be prayed for. Here's our, our belief. The Bible teaches that it's God's will that we should live free of sin and free. In other words, the Bible says that we're not to be slaves of anything but to Christ. We are to live free. It is His plan. It is His will. And we are to live lives of wholeness. And so tonight we're going to pray those things as we gather together. So I want to encourage you to be here. 5.30 right here in the sanctuary. Uh, we'll just have a short worship and then a, a lot of prayer and ministry time. Tomorrow morning is our last prayer and worship kickoff from 6 to 7 a.m. So finish strong with us. Join me here. Those times, that, look, I am not a morning person. How many, how many of us are there out there? How many of us non-morning types are there? I am not a morning person. Like I love it when I'm there, but getting there is hurting me. You know what I'm saying? But I want to tell you, I, I can't remember the last time I was strengthened and encouraged and, and sensed God's presence like I have in these Monday morning prayer times. They have been phenomenal. And so if your schedule allows, some of you can't make it, you drive from a long way or whatever, but if you can be here at any point between 6 and 7, stop through and spend a few minutes with us on your way to work, or if you can stay the whole hour, any of that works. All right, this morning we've been talking about breakthroughs. There are times in our life where we've done all we can do. We, in other words, we've kind of exhausted everything we know to do, everything we know how to do, and we get stuck. Something different has to happen for us to get unstuck. I believe it was Albert Einstein who said, to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result is a form of insanity. We've described getting unstuck in this month, in this series, as a breakthrough. So we've talked about breakthroughs in faith. 
We've talked last week about breakthrough in family. We talked about relationships. If you haven't heard those messages, they're all loaded up on iTunes. Now you can go to our website and navigate to it. I would encourage you to get those two and catch up with us. Today we're going to talk about breakthrough fire. And then next week will be the last week. We're going to talk about breakthrough fitness and breakthrough finance. Jesus' disciples found themselves in a place where they were stuck. They'd walked with Jesus for three years. He'd lived with them. He died. He resurrected. Uh, and now he was gone. He had ascended, went back to heaven. And all this group had left was his last instruction. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. So here they are, stuck, kind of huddled in a corner of the universe, gathered together for warmth, pinned between their own doubts and about the future and Jesus' last words. And as they prayed, they waited on the power of the Holy Spirit. They waited on the Comforter. They waited on what Jesus described as the promise of the Father. They waited and they prayed, and in a little while, the Comforter arrived and He showed up and he filled their life with such power that they left that room and they changed the world. Now Jesus told the disciples about this from the very beginning. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 11, early on in Jesus' relationship with the disciples, early on in Jesus' ministry, he said to them, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in Acts chapter 1, we see that same language. Now, fast forward for a minute. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Fast forward through all the miracles and the teaching and the healing and the long walks and the, you know, everything that happened. Now, Jesus has been tried. He's been beaten. He's been falsely accused. He's been crucified. He's died. He's resurrected, and he's gone. And now it's like we sort of come full circle back in Acts chapter 1 to Matthew 3. For John baptized with water. Do you hear the same language again? For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now I'm just calling this a breakthrough in fire because it starts with F. <laughs> it matches the other ones. God has a plan for your life. And you can only fulfill it with his help. And you can only fulfill it in the context of his greater plan for everything. He doesn't just have a plan for you and he doesn't just have a plan for me. He has a plan. And his plan for you fits in his plan for everything. And God has no plan for you that doesn't help fulfill his plan. And this plan also only works in, in the context of Jesus' family. In other words, the body of Christ, the family of Jesus on earth, is the vehicle by which Jesus does his work. So his plan for your life is defined in the context of his plan, and his plan for your life is defined in the context of his people, of his family. These are all inseparably tied together. Now, I've been concerned as I was preparing this message that it would sound like you sort of stumbled into a pastor's conference. You know, that, that, that 
we're, we're talking about these things on a level or, or in a way that you say, well, that's what church leaders talk about. That's, a, that's what pastors talk about when they get together. That doesn't really concern me. I'm, you know, I work hard all week. I'm trying to raise my kids. I'm trying to pay my bills. I'm trying to get all the homework turned in, the oil changed in the car. Just give me something to build me up and get me through to next week. I want to say to you, I get it. I understand what it's like to carry a lot of heavy burdens. But I just want to ask you a question. Would you agree that if it's something that's on Jesus' heart, His intention is for it to be on His people's heart? If it's something that He's concerned with, if it's something that burdens Him, then He desires for us to be burdened by the same things that burdens Him. Because he's not, He can't be wrong. He's not wasting time on something. He's not stressing out. He's not having an anxiety fit. He's not distracted by something he shouldn't be. He's actually razor focused. And if it's something that he's focused in on, then then my assumption is, is that we are to be. So Jesus has connected his power to what is on his heart. In other words, Jesus, we don't need Jesus' power to do our plan. Jesus won't lend his ability, he won't lend his power to anyone to do their will or their plan or live their dream. Jesus will only give us his power to do his dream, to do his plan, to do his will, to do his work. I remember when I was in Bible school, we had a, um, a professor called Dr. Ferrand. He and his wife were lo- lifelong missionaries, 50 years they spent on the mission field, the Philippines and Fiji Islands, and uh, they had spent a lot of time on the mission field. He said he had taught all kind of young national pastors as they would be called to ministry. They were in a training ministry, and so they were on a year of furlough and came and taught at the college that I was at, so, so we got a year with them. And he said to me, all the time I hear young ministers, young pastors, young Whatever. People call to the ministry training. If you had to be a martyr, could you be a martyr? In other words, I mean, I mean, of course you know the right answer. I'm not asking you the right answer. But if somebody walked in and said, you've got to turn your back on God. You've got to sever your relationship with Jesus. You've got to reject Him. You've got to turn away from Him. You've got to curse God and die. Or I'm a, we're going to kill you. Could, you. could you be a martyr? Could you... He said, there's such a stress. Now, we don't identify with that very well in America because we've never been under that pressure. But globally, the 20th century had more martyrs, Christian martyrs, than any century in world history. So it is a living reality for a lot of the church. And so he was in parts of the world where they would stress about that reality. And he wisely said... You're stressing about the wrong thing. You're asking yourself the question, do I have the faith, do I have the grace, do I have the power, do I have the ability, if my life were on the line, to stick with Jesus anyway? He said, no, of course you don't, because you don't have to. But if your life is ever on the line, then God will give you the grace to do what you need to do then. But He won't give it to you now because you don't need it. And when I think about that, this is sort of what the power of the Holy Spirit seems like to me. 
Maybe we sometimes lack God's power because we don't need it. We don't need it to do what we're doing. We need it to do what He's doing. And when we do what He's doing, we have it. I, I don't know if you've been keeping up, but in America, church attendance has been declining for 40 years. And people who study these trends tell us that as the boomers and the builders fade away, that decline will accelerate. 94% of churches in the United States are not growing. And the majority of the 6% that are, are just moving people from one church to another one, and we call that church growth. It's not any kingdom growth, it's just church growth. People aren't coming to faith, they're just going to worship at a different location. Now, the first disciples realized their need for the Holy Spirit's power because they realized the odds. Everything was against them. Rome was in charge. Their leader had been crucified. Some of his followers had been killed. The world was hostile to Christianity. The religiously, the world was pluralistic and sexually permissive. And the Jewish religion had been hijacked by legalists. To share their faith would possibly mean to risk their own life. And they realized they were outgunned and outmatched and all the odds were against them. They were Jewish nobodies in a Greek and a Roman world. They were up against the wall. And they needed help if they were going to share their faith, if they were going to make a difference, if they were going to impact their own children, let alone anybody else. They needed help. And it makes me wonder sometimes if we understand the context. Our life moves so fast. I wonder if we understand the challenge that we're up against. We live in the most unchurched county in the state of Alabama. We're fighting for the attention span of the average person who has more options than they have time. We battle the idols of affluence and sports and entertainment and workaholism. And that's just the things that are acceptable and on the surface. Below the surface, there's the dark underground world of drug addiction and pornography and sex trade and crime and greed. We live in a culture that desperately wants the church to go away. We live in a sexually toxic culture. Homosexuality has nearly reached full minority status. So we find ourselves now wanting to be the friend of, like Jesus, the friend of the culture, but now at odds with the culture that we're in. Our belief that homosexuality is a, is a behavior of broken sexuality will probably one day be an illegal belief in our country. I don't know if you saw a federal judge this week struck down the Alabama ban on uh, gay marriage. I don't know if you saw that. So I'm just saying it will continue to move. All I'm asking you the question this morning is, are we aware of how much we need the Holy Spirit's power? The disciples who walked with Jesus for three years needed, and I want, you to, I want you to zero in on this statement with me. The disciples who walked with Jesus for three years needed more than what being with Jesus for three years could give them. Now that sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? They needed the Holy Spirit. Now I want to share with you this morning, if you're taking notes, just get something out and write these down. I want to share with you three things 
that spirit baptism does in your life. Three things. When Jesus said, there's one coming after me who will fill you, who will baptize you. Then Acts 1, in a few days you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. I want to just share with you three things. Look, these are, uh, I've, I've not read these anywhere. These are fresh and unique. And, and I wanted to share with you in an attempt to, in, to invite you to a breakthrough with God. Here's the first one. Spirit baptism intensifies your relationship with the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26 was in our uh, devotional a few days ago, several days ago, when we were reading through John. And I came upon this verse. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will, will remind you of everything I said to you. So when Jesus was on earth, he was with his disciples in person. He was with them physically. He, he walked with them and talked with them and ate and he answered questions and they traveled together. But when Jesus left, he tells his disciples, when I go away, it's actually going to be better for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had those moments in my life where I dreamed of, I would have loved to have just sat down with Jesus for a minute. You know what I mean? I would have loved to sat across from him. The campfire, asked him a question, walked along the road. I'd love to have seen him. I'd love to have seen his, his mannerisms, his body language. I would love to have been there when he said this or said that. I feel like I could have gained so much in that moment. But yet Jesus says, it's actually better for you. He's talking to his disciples, those that have walked with him for three years. It's better for you that I go away. Because if I go, the counselor will be with you. Who's the counselor? He's another version of Jesus. He has the same mind and the same will and the same love and the same desire for relationship. He's God in a different form. He's not out there. You can't see him. He's not limited by time and space. He can be in more place, uh, more than one place at a time. He's in here. The Bible says you're about to move to ultra high death. It's a whole new deal. And the, the counselor is the one that Jesus sent. The helper the Spirit that is holy, the one who will teach you all things, this verse says, and remind you of everything that Jesus said. He's the one who lives in you. Now to be baptized, immersed in Him, is to relate to Him in a deeper way. I think one of the reasons that um, we often overlook the work of the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit doesn't talk to us about Himself. He talks to us about Jesus. Isn't that what this verse says? He'll, he will remind you of everything Jesus said. He will, he, will, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything Jesus said. He focuses on Jesus. He highlights Jesus. He's centered in Jesus. He talks to us about Jesus' life and teaching and resurrection and death and his second coming. He focuses on him, so I think it's easy for us to overlook him. I remember when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, my relationship with God changed. My prayer life changed. I wasn't a better Christian. I didn't get a cape. I didn't get a uniform. I didn't become a superhero. Nothing like that. I couldn't fly. I didn't have x-ray vision. I just related to God differently. It opened a door to me that I had not known before. Now, I want to take a very unscientific poll. For those of you who've been filled with the Holy Spirit, how many of you would say it changed it changed your relationship with God. 
How, how many of you would say that's true? It changed your relationship with God. Oh, whoa, 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 no, no, hold, no, uh, hold on, leave them up. Now look, I just want you to look around. It changed, so what I'm saying to you, you know to be the truth. It changed your relationship with God. Here's the second thing. Spirit baptism enables you to pray in tongues. Now, this is the controversial part that, you know, I think, I think there's been all kind of extremes here uh, that have been frustrating and confusing, and so I, I want to, Unfortunately, I think the enemy has built a moat of fear <laughs> around the work of the Holy Spirit because uh, he has made us afraid of a, of a beautiful uh, gift that God gives. Now, look, I can remember nobody in my family has ever been filled with the Holy Spirit, to my knowledge, on either side for generations. So I can remember my apprehension the first time I heard anybody pray in tongues. I, of course, the guy that was doing it was a little crazy anyway, so that didn't help. But I can remember hearing it and thinking, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm just telling you right now, I'm not doing that. And, and I think the way that we have sometimes handled and talked about tongues. And I think sometimes the way uh, that we on the outside, it's a fear of losing control. It's a fear of being put in a position you don't want to be in. And I, I understand that. I felt that. So what I want to do is try to kick around in 1 Corinthians 14 for a few minutes and talk about, uh, just sort of openly talk about um, why that matters. So, spirit baptism enables you to pray in tongues. I think that we've misemphasized that somehow um, tongues is a badge or a, a proof or whatever, as if, it, as, it, as if it has no purpose on its own. Its only purpose is to verify. Its only purpose is to validate. Its only purpose is to show that there's no other... So, I want to steer a whole different way this morning... And maybe you're saying, why, why would I want to do that? Well, there always seems to be a verbal expression to God's deepest inner work. Maybe you remember in Exodus when the Holy Spirit uh, moved on Moses and, and God was talking to Moses saying, you're burning out, you need help. We've got 70 elders. They all went to the tent, the tabernacle. And then the Holy Spirit came and he took the, the anointing, he took part of the Spirit that was on Moses and he went and he put it on all those 70 elders. And the confirmation or the, the expression of that deep inner work was a verbalization, Exodus says, that all 70 of those elders prophesied. There seems to be a, a verbal expression to the deepest inner work of God. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, the Bible tells us how we get saved. How do we get saved? We believe in our heart, and then what else do we do? We, why, why? Why do we have to do that? There seems to be a verbal expression to the deep inner work of God in our life. So I'm saying to you, when we feel the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues is a, is a verbal expression. Now, praying in tongues becomes part of your prayer life. I think, unfortunately, we've so overemphasized the gift of tongues that we fail to understand what I'm going to say to you is the grace of tongues or, or praying in tongues. So I want to focus on praying in tongues because it affects everybody, right? So maybe, maybe you've had this thought, 
I, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, God's going to make me stand in front of everybody and do that. Right? And that's uh, 1 Corinthians 12. That's the gift of tongues where somebody speaks in tongues and somebody interprets and all of that. But look, that doesn't even affect everybody, and I'll tell you why. If we all started a day and took turns and everybody gave a gift of tongues and interpretation, everybody, this year everybody wouldn't even do it once. In three years, everybody in this room, forget the next service, everybody in this room wouldn't even do it once. Right? I mean, is that right? Is that not right? Look at the math. Everybody wouldn't even do it once. So what I want to do for, for now is I, I want to forget about that. Let's talk about the grace of tongues or praying in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, because that's something everybody can do. 1 Corinthians 14 is confusing because we usually don't realize that Paul's distinguishing between a public gift and a private prayer. Paul's doing a balancing act. He's attempting to bring correction to the Corinthian church because they're misusing and abusing the gift of tongues. But he's trying to do it in a way that he doesn't discourage them from yielding to praying in tongues personally. Now, Paul's not against tongues. He's trying to protect it. He even says in verse 18 how grateful he was that he spoke in tongues more than all the Corinthians. In other words, he's saying, hey, you guys are extreme and you're weirdos and you're whacked out and you're hanging from the lights and all that. But let me just tell you something. I speak in tongues more than you do. So he's not against that. He's saying this is a wild church. But look, I speak in tongues more than all of you. So it doesn't sound like somebody that's down on it. The man wrote who wrote one-third of the New Testament says, I speak in tongues more than the wildest church in the New Testament. Now think about that. So he's not against this. But let me show you one place in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul switched between public and private. 1 Corinthians 14, 18, 19, it's the place I just mentioned. He said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Now just stop. You don't have to read nothing else. On that verse, does it sound like that he's for it or against it? He practices it. This is a regular part of his life. Now 19, but that's private. He's not saying, I stand in a worship service and I give a message in tongues more than you all. You do it every other week, I do it every week. Na-na-na-boo-boo. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in, in my own personal relationship with God, part of my prayer life, part of my spiritual life is praying in tongues. On the other hand, verse 19, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct. And then he's given corporate instruction on how this all, how to work. So on one hand, he's speaking private. On the other hand, he's speaking public. If you'll read 1 Corinthians 14 through that lens, it'll change the way you understand it. Some of it's private, some of it's public, and he's going back and forth, and he doesn't always warn you when he's going to do it. So he's not saying, uh, 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 so he's uh, vacillating between the two. Now, let me just look at a couple of things this morning that we know to be true from 1 Corinthians 14 about tongues. Forget for a minute that Paul was bringing correction and all that. Yes, all of that's true, all that's necessary, all that's needed. Let's just look at 1 Corinthians 14 for what the chapter reveals to us about the function of tongues is. Here's the first one. Tongues is a way to talk to God. Verse 2 says, when a person speaks in tongues, they're not 
1 Corinthians 14, 2. They're not speaking to men, but to God. So tongues is a way to talk to God, right? That's one of the functions of tongues. So when all you focus on is, well, you got it or you don't got it, and here's the proof, then we misunderstand. Tongues has a function in our life separate from the other things that we normally hear it about. Tongues, then, is a way to talk to God. Here's the second one. Tongues builds you up. Verse 4 says, a person who speaks in tongues edifies themselves. Now, some people who criticize praying in tongues use this verse to say, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's not right or that's not something you should do because you're just building yourself up. <laughs> My answer to that is, so? How's, isn't that why we encourage people to read the Bible? To pray, to fast, to do their devotions, to come to soak. Isn't that why we encourage people to... Isn't that why we encourage a lot of things? Am I, is there some virtue that I'm unaware of in being spiritually weak and defeated? Is that somehow honorable? Is that somehow something God wants for our life? Since when is building yourself up bad? Didn't say showing off, building yourself up. I, I read a, a story from a pastor named Robert Morris, who pastors Gateway Church in Dallas. He tells about how he was going to a giant mega church. He was about to. He was a traveling speaker, and he was going to preach. And um, that church uh, had more water baptisms than any church in that church's denomination that year, and they were seeing God do incredible things. And so he had heard as he got in town that that pastor uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prayed in tongues. Now that intrigued him because they were a part of a denomination where you didn't do that. And he, had Robert Morris had never done that. And so when they were alone in private, he finally got the opportunity to ask him. He said, hey, I hear that you pray in tongues. He said, yes. He said, can I ask you why? He said, well, the Bible says it builds you up. And to be honest, I need all the building up I can get. Here's the third thing. Praying in tongues is praying with your spirit. Verse 14 says, If I pray in tongues, my mind is unfruitful, but my spirit prays. So in other words, it's a kind of pray, spiritual praying. You don't know what you're praying, but you're having a spiritual connection with God that is um, fruitful. On Sunday mornings oftentimes, as I did this morning, I do a prayer walk. And I pray, and I walk, and I pray, and I seek the Lord, and I say, God, this is important. There will be people in this room today who, for some of them, life and death, divorce or, or reconciliation, forgiveness or healing or salvation, or people are going to make decisions today. This is a critical and important day. God, I need you, I need your help. And I've never made a law out of it. I've never made a rule out of it. But most Sunday mornings, I pray in tongues. As I walk, I pray, and I say, God... Cover, help, restore, my spirit prays. I'm building myself up because I'm about to go in battle. <laughs> I'm about to oppose the forces of darkness with this church service and this message and this prayer time. And God, I need you. And so, praying in the spirit. Now, Paul goes a long way in this chapter to make it clear that praying in tongues was a good thing. First, he said, I pray in tongues more than you all. In verse 5, he said, I wish you all spoke in tongues. And then at the very end in verse 39, it's almost like, have you ever, have you ever um, dealt with something sort of harshly 
And then sort of as you're about to wrap it up, you almost say, you know what, I'm afraid I might have given the wrong impression. And so you just want to kind of clarify as you end, hey, I didn't want you to get the idea that. To me, it feels like in verse 39, he says that. The very end of all this dialogue, chapter 14, he says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Do not forbid it. Just in case you misunderstood what I said. Just in case you thought when I said that this was better or do that or only let two or three people do it at once or just in case any of that got cloudy. Let me be crystal clear. If me saying I speak in tongues more than you all didn't do it and if me saying I wish every one of you prayed in tongues, then let me just clarify it. Don't forbid that. Don't forbid that. All right, so spirit baptism enables us to pray in tongues. Here's the third one. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Spirit baptism empowers you to do God's will. In other words, spirit baptism empowers you to do God's plan for your life in the context of His plan. Right? What, what God has given you to do to be the kind of whatever, the kind of dad, the kind of mom, the kind of husband and wife, parents, co-worker, employee, employer, missionary, teacher, life group leader, kids class leader, to, to reach out to your neighbors, your friends, your family, to share your faith, to share your testimony, to share your story, to make an impact, to build relationships with people that don't know God. All the stuff, we would all the big umbrella of the mission of God, spirit baptism empowers you to do that. I have a friend who's a missionary in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands is, um, it's, a, it's a very, uh, my wife and I were able to go in the 90s. It's a very dark, um, dark and broken place. The number one method of suicide in the nation of the Netherlands is to throw yourself in front of an ongoing train. And it happens, they have a fantastic train system there and there's everywhere. And so they actually have a crew whose job is to come clean up after someone kills themselves. It's, it's a very depressing society. 50% of the country's on, on uh, psychiatric medicine and care. It, it's, just, it's a very tough place. The church has struggled greatly. Missionaries have been chewed up and spit out. In the 90s, I met a couple who had just gotten there six months before we arrived. And they were reaching, and, and now things have, are finally beginning to change. They put their feet in the ground. The Lord's helped them. Other missionaries have come. Transition has happened. And now there's more missionaries. I think double or maybe triple the number of missionaries in that place as there were in the 90s when we were there. So there have been some breakthroughs. But he said, um, you have to understand how far away from God the culture is. So he said he was, uh, I think they were in a coffee shop or something. They were using it as a relationship building point with people that were far away from God. And he said he was there, and there was this rough group of older teenagers there, you know, jackets and all this stuff. And this one girl had a, had a mohawk right up, probably with blue tips on top, big earrings. And they were in there just sharing. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit said to Tim, he said, um, I want you to tell this, this girl this. And so as they were there, they were all about to leave, he said, um, I believe God wants you to know I believe God said to me that he wants you to know that he loves you 
and that he's not the kind of father that you had. And he sees your pain, and he forgives you, and he wants to help you. And this big old punk rock looking alternative, right in the middle of all her friends, she just broke and cried. Coffee shop. And um, she said, can I talk to you? And the other friend said, ah, they've started making fun of her, and they all left. They just abandoned her. Wow, what great friends. They just left her. And Tim and his wife were able to minister to that girl that day and speak to her. But without the help of the Holy Spirit, that moment doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. God will give you the power to do His plan and His will. That God's will was to reach out to that girl that day and to heal her and help her and to forgive her. But without the, without the help of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't happen. So I want to ask you to stand with me this morning and I want us to pray. When Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, he came to the city of Ephesus and he met some disciples there. And he asked them this question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Prayer team, would you come? He said, we haven't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. He said, well, yes. And that very day, those disciples prayed and received the Holy Spirit. So I got a question for you. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Now, now here's what I just want to say to you this morning. It's not about do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit or not. What it's about is does God want to fill you with the Spirit or not. And that's the question. Some of you aren't going to resolve that question today. And I'm totally cool with that. That's fine. But that is the question that you have to resolve. Does God want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Does God want to give you His power? You know, Jesus told the disciples, you got to go to Jerusalem and wait. i got good news for you. The reason they had to wait is because the Holy Spirit wasn't on earth yet. The good news for you is you and I don't have to wait. Because He's here. We're not waiting for Him to arrive. We're not waiting for something else to happen. Everything that needs to happen has already happened. We just have to walk and say, Lord... So every eye closed this morning, here's how I want us to pray today. If you say this morning, Holy Spirit, I want you in my life and I will make room for you and I want you to make whatever changes in my life that you need to make. That's what, that's what you want to say. Lord, I'm, I'm here. I'll make room. Whatever changes you want me to make, I'll make. But Holy Spirit, I want you in my life. I want you in my life. If that's you, would you just lift your hand today and say, that's me. I want you in my life. Holy Spirit, I want you in my life. I need your help. I need your help. And I want you in my life. Maybe you're here today and you say, maybe you've been Spirit baptized. You say, man, I'm living a dry, I'm living a, you know, I've, I've been distant. I've been away. And I want to invite the work of the Holy Spirit in my life today. I need His help. I need His friendship. I need His power. Would you lift your hand and say, I need Holy Spirit. I want to invite you into my life today. I invite you. I invite you to work, to change, to do whatever you want to do. I surrender today. Would you just lift your hand and say, that's me? 
them. I'm going to pray and then the worship team's going to sing. We're going to sing this together as we come for prayer. Lord, I thank you today that the promise of the Father is true. I thank you today for the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given to your church to do your work in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our neighborhood, in our city, everywhere we are. And so, Lord, today we welcome you, Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the worship team to just begin to sing that song. If you lifted your hand, you didn't. You, you just want to come and stand and pray and have somebody agree with you. Would you come right now? You lifted your hand. I want you to come right now. Come right now. Say, Holy Spirit, I invite you. I invite you into my life. I invite your work. I invite your presence. I invite your power. I invite you, Lord. I invite you. I invite you.